You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. During Advent, we celebrate not a myth or sentimental folklore, but a holy and magnificent reality. Jesus has walked among us before, and as his word testifies, he will come again with the same majesty and devastating humility into any heart ready to receive him. We observe this truth at Christmas time through the symbolic lighting of candles around the Advent wreath. Last week, we lit the longing candle setting our hearts on the Savior that is to come. And this week, we light the hope candle, knowing that darkness will lift again, even as it has been lifted before. As people who walk in the shadow of grace, our hope is that when the light of day is at its height, revealing all, we will be found blameless and awake, abounding in love. The darkness does not cling to us because the Savior has come. Light is given freely to us even now as a promise that darkness will not prevail at the day of Christ's return. For you, we wait, O Lord. I will be reading from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that like the Apostle Paul, you have provided us with a new identity You've called us to be your servants. You've called us to be set apart as your saints. You've called us to be partakers in the gospel of grace with one another. And so I pray that we would be able to walk worthy, walk, as Paul says, with love abounding, with excellence, and with confidence, knowing that you're the one who began the work and you're the one who will complete it. We wait for you with rejoicing in your name. Amen. Awesome. Well, what a joy it is to be here with you all. Uh, These lights are rad. It's kind of like what I imagine LASIK surgery is like. And so I can't see any of you, but when I leave here, I'll see better than when I came in somehow. Nonetheless, uh, we want you to know you're a really deeply loved congregation by Sacred Mission Church. We're so thankful to be a part of Acts 29 uh, together and to see what the gospel's doing uh, globally, uh, but what the gospel's doing in this northern Cincinnati area as well. I'm originally uh, born and raised New Miami, right? Any, any seven-mile New Miami people up in here? Word. Yeah, I feel you. We got out, though. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, 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 play, played West Side baseball my whole life, uh, all that. So, so this is home for me. My, a lot of my family is from this area. Uh, and then I've kind of been up in the northern Cincy area uh, for most of my life. I did 
plant a church, uh, an Acts 29 church, uh, co-planted it with about... Uh, a little over 10 years ago in Walnut Hills. And actually, we planted in a uh, art studio space. So it was about a 100,000-ish square foot old textile factory uh, that was home to just dozens and dozens of artists. And, and there was something about being in relationship with these artists that I, that I discovered as I was kind of building relationship with them and understanding their craft and their medium and all these things. There was a lot of time I would walk into a studio and, and what was on the wall, I really couldn't make out, right? I couldn't really understand what it was going to become. I couldn't really identify with the process. You kind of have this like blank canvas and then they start doing a rough sketch. They start maybe applying color. And there's times I'd walk in and be like, man, that's all, that's, I wouldn't say this to him, but I was, I was thinking like, that's not going to be good at all, right? That's just going to be a bad thing. And, and then we would do these art walks a couple times a year, and it was an opportunity for the public to come in and see this image of completion that each artist had been striving for uh, in, in their laboring, right? And, and there, it was blown away by how beautiful these pieces of work became as the artists labored to finish what they started. And it was appreciation that was built into those artists from me on the way that they were able to take something that looked that just completely looked broken or, or bad or like maybe they dropped out of art scores, you know, and then come into this beautiful finished portrait. That's kind of a lot of what Paul's talking to us about in this introduction to Philippians. He, he's going to help us understand that there's an image of completion of which we are working toward, but more importantly, that Christ is working in us, and he's going to help us understand what that means and looks like, because what we have to understand is that a lot of times when we get into like the Christmas season, we can kind of Ricky Bobby this, right? We can love baby Jesus and we want to look back at baby Jesus. That's the baby Jesus. That's the Jesus we like the most. And, and we get really fixated on this infant in a, in a stable, right? Laying in a manger. Yet Christ is coming back for us. And Advent isn't just looking back to remember Christ in his first coming. Advent really is for the church, uh, a preparing of our hearts that we might look forward to Christ coming for us and to consummate his bride, the church, that we might be with him eternally as his people. And when he comes back, he's not going to come back as an infant swaddled in a manger. He's going to come back as a king uh, that is riding on the back of a horse with a tattoo on his thigh, with fire in his eyes, a sword out of his mouth. He's going to be a conquering warrior when he returns. And so for us, Paul's going to help us understand, church, we got to look forward to what Christ is doing and what he will do on that day when he comes for us. And so as we kind of open up this letter, let's look at verses one through five. So if you don't have a Bible, get it out. I work very much by the text, word for word. So I'm going to point out some things that's going to be important for you to look at as we understand this. But when we look at verses one through five, the very introduction of this letter, here's what I want us to see. We'll summarize it as this. It's a, it's a joy-filled gospel partnership, a joy-filled gospel partnership. You can sense Paul's joy as he's writing to the church at Philippi. Uh, he doesn't normally have this posture, right? He, he kind of has this posture of frustration or correctiveness as he writes to other churches. We can actually get a taste of this in his letter to the church at Galatia. In, in Galatians 1, verses 6, here's how he introed this letter. He said, these words, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That's not the tone that Paul has here with the church at Philippi. He has one of extreme gratitude and thankfulness. He, he, he welcomes them with grace and peace. And he says that it's because of this reason. Verse 3, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul had a critical role in the planting of the church of Philippi uh, as he met uh, these uh, people with inside the city like Lydia and the uh, demon-possessed girl and, and the bailer in the jail, all these people who he prayed for, led to the Lord or 
preached the gospel to, Paul was very critical to their foundation. And he knew that they were partnering with him in gospel ministry from the first day. He had a sincere thankfulness in his heart. He says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. You see, Paul, this was a joy-filled gospel partnership that he had with Philippi. And this is going to help set the tone as we look at the central prayer that Paul actually does communicate to them that he has for them. But let's look at verses 6 through 9 before we get there. In verses 6 through 9, what we see is this, a confidence in Christ's work and their fruit. Confidence in Christ's work and their fruit. Paul starts off this section of the text with, uh, I am confident of this, right? So we have to ask, well, what is the this thing that he's so confident of? It, it really means that he is fully persuaded that this outcome will come to pass, that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion, that's Paul's confidence. So where's Paul's confidence rooted in? Paul's confidence isn't rooted in the behavior or the ethic or, or, or any of these kind of physical outworkings of the church at Philippi. Paul's confidence is rooted solely in Christ Jesus the Lord. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what Paul's doing there, he's making them look forward. He's making them look to something that's coming. It's the day of Christ Jesus. As he comes for his church, Christ is sure we can have this utmost confidence, be fully persuaded that he will finish what he started in us. You see, Christ is the very source of our righteousness. He, he, he's the agent that gives us right standing with God the Father because we have had this great exchange, this supernatural reality where Christ became our sin so that we might become his righteousness. And while we have right standing with God and Christ starts a good work in us, we find ourselves in this tension of living a life of sanctification, right? It's life of where we are becoming more and more like what? We are coming like Christ. The end goal for you and for me is that on the day of Christ, we might be found like him completely. That's this whole process of sanctification, that the image of God that was marred in the garden because we believed the lie of the serpent and we sinned and rebelled against our maker, this image is being perfected and renewed in us by the power of the Spirit as we live faithfully to the law of God and to the obedience to his Spirit so that we might be found in his image fully. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, in the NASB, I like this translation a little bit more than the ESV. It says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul writing, uh, well, maybe Paul, maybe Apollos, whoever, it doesn't matter. In Hebrews, he's writing and saying, what? That Christ Jesus begins our faith and finishes our faith. He begins a good work in us and he completes a good work in us. And all of that assurance that Paul has, how he's able to be fully persuaded, ultimately can be seen in the very last phrase of Hebrews 12 too, that he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Christ Jesus' work is so finished and complete that he can enter into a Sabbath seated at the right hand of his Father. He's not laboring anymore. He's already brought it to the finished work, and we are those who are experiencing the application of that finished work by the Holy Spirit in our lives until we see the fullness of the realization that he has truly conquered all. Paul gives us a reason as to why he is fully persuaded. In verse 7, he says, well, it's actually right for me to feel this way. This isn't just coming out of some like, weird, fake sincerity. Like, I'm an I'm a, I'm a eight on the Enneagram. I don't know if that means anything to you. I'm a jerk. 
by nature. And so uh, sincerity, I'm always like real cautious of like, oh yeah, okay, you're fake. Or, you know, like I just, I don't take things good. And so Paul could, you know, he's not coming out of this kind of fake sincerity or, or anything. He, he's genuinely sincere of the way that he is feeling about the church at Philippi. And, and it's, it's rooted in Christ's supremacy. It's rooted in Christ's sovereignty. But it's affirmed in the evidence that the church at Philippi has been receivers of the very same grace that he has. This is that beautiful harmony of Christ's sovereignty and man's responsibility that if Christ has truly done something in us, if the Spirit truly fills us, then there will be evidences of this grace that would give us even more confidence, affirm the confidence that we say that we have that Christ has truly come into your life. It's right for me to feel this way. For you are all partakers with me of grace both in my prison, imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. We see two realities of Paul's confidence. We see confidence in the sovereign work of Christ Jesus, but we also see confidence in the faithful fruit of the church. It provides a sure evidence for Paul that Jesus is truly working in them. And in verse eight, we see, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The confidence gives Paul a deep and genuine affection for the church. Founded first by Christ's work and then supported by their fruit. And then Paul's going to go into the remainder of this section of his opening of his letter to Philippi with this prayer. And this is going to kind of be the meat of our text this morning, this prayer that he has for them. And what we see in verses 9 through 11 is a prayer for the image of completion. What do you think it would look like for Christ to finish his work in you? What do you think that image of completion looks like? We probably don't, unless we've got some probably emotional problems or something, we probably don't think about our death a lot, right? I, I do. I have issues where I, I think about death a lot. I have since I was ever a child. Uh, but I've realized most people aren't like me. Uh, and so you probably don't, don't really think through about the finiteness of it. If, if anything, in our culture, in our human condition, we kind of push off the reality that we're finite beings, uh, that, that we kind of push off the pondering of our mortality, right? We, we really don't like to think about those things. Uh, but, and that probably leads us to really not pondering what is this finished work or this completed image going to look like for us that Christ is working and developing with us through the power of the Spirit. But Paul's going to let us know exactly what this image is going to look like here in this prayer. But before we get there, we have to realize that Paul girds his confidence in the finished work of Christ with a prayer for the believers at Philippi. And here's the heart of his prayer. Here's the thrust of his prayer. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge in all discernment. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. This is the heart of Paul's prayer. This is what he's praying for. And then we're gonna work through two realities or implications of this prayer. But as we dive into this, let's ask a question. What kind of love is Paul talking about? You know, in our kind of culture, we have one word, love, and we apply it to everything, right? Right, we love our spouses, and uh, if you're like me, you love Doritos sweet chili flavor. That's the hands down the best flavor out there. I don't care who you are; it is. It's it, it's objectively so, and we say love to these things, right? Or, or or we love our dog, and we love our children. If you have human children, those are your children. Those other things are pets. They're not fur babies, or or whatever you want to emotional attachment you want to have. To them, they're not human, they're not made in the image of God, they're utility, I'll get off of that. But anyway, we say love because in our English language we kind of have one word for that, right? But biblically we see all different kinds of languages of love and their application is extremely important. And what Paul's talking about here is this love that is agape love. Agape love, this is the love of the Father 
for his children. And that's the love that Paul is asking to abound more and more. And, and as sacred mission, we like to work with functional definitions, right? So we don't throw out stuff and then give you no concrete definition of what that means. So here's what I want us to understand about what agape love is. It's the steady intention of the will to another's highest good. The steady intention of the will to another's highest good. What do we understand in this? It's not emotionally driven. It's not circumstantial, right? If, if God's love for us was emotionally driven or circumstantial, uh, we would not be receivers of his love. The beauty of our security in the gospel of Christ is that the Father, before the foundations of the earth, intended through his own free and sovereign will to place and lavish his affection upon you. That's the steadfast love of the Lord. As you look through the scriptures and it talks about the steadfast love of the Lord, it's talking about God Almighty intended through his purpose to love you no matter what. It's not circumstance-based. It's not emotional-based. But it's also for a purpose that we might be receivers of our highest good. That's what God wants for you. Now, what we fail to understand and realize a lot of the time is that our highest good is to have him. To have him and him alone. To be in communion with him and fellowship with him. To be receivers of that grace and mercy and kindness and affection. Oh, that is our highest good, church. And what does he do through the very death, burial, and resurrection of his son? He gives us himself. Without Christ, we couldn't have the Father. Without Christ, we couldn't have our highest good. And it says in the scriptures that Christ is the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the earth. God Almighty intended in his sovereign will to lavish his steadfast love upon you, and he demonstrates it most through Christ his son. This is the love that Paul is asking or praying to abound more and more. A love that is set on others, not because of how you feel, not because of the circumstances that are happening in your life, but because you are willing in yourself to place it upon them so that they might experience their highest good. Doesn't that drive mission? Doesn't that drive evangelism and sharing the gospel and living amongst unbelieving people that we might offer to them their highest good to be reconciled to the Father through Christ? He's asking for that love to abound more and more. But he says something critical we have to pay attention to. He says, with. With knowledge in all discernment. So here's what Paul wants. Paul wants this agape love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna submit two perspectives that we can have on this word with and how they actually affect our understanding of knowledge and all discernment. So perspective one, right? With actually dictates knowledge and discernment as the substance that makes that love grow, right? So, so how are you going to make bread rise? With yeast. You're going to put yeast in there. Bread's going to rise. Paul's saying, I want your love to actually abound more and more through the agent of knowledge in all discernment. Perspective two. That with is something that, uh, that knowledge and discernment is, accompanies love. It is something that actually accompanies love in that it might complete it. Right? If love by itself uh, could be uh, somewhat found wanting, that it needs knowledge and discernment to actually complete it. And I think, I want to submit fully that I think it's both perspectives are true. Let me try to argue my point, right? I think both perspectives are true. Here's where we have to start. Either perspective instates that knowledge and discernment are critical to the love that we are called to have. Now, some of you might think, 
I don't know where knowledge and discernment is going to help me love people better, right? Sometimes we think that knowledge and discernment actually uh, uh, frustrate or oppress our ability to love others better. I think the Bible actually teaches something very different. Uh, and, and I hope to, to persuade you of that truth this morning. What we have to realize, though, is that the language of the text dictates that the knowledge and discernment that is with love, right, it, it is critical to its very nature. Knowledge and discernment as a substance determines the cause of the growth of our love. Knowledge and discernment as the accompaniment determines the maturing of our love. So what I believe Paul is actually saying is that our love would abound more and more through two things, the growth and the maturation that comes with knowledge and all discernment. The growth and maturation that comes through knowledge and all discernment. It's kind of like this, right? Uh, there's a reality where boys uh, need to grow, right? Boys need to grow. So you, you all hear granny talking about how they have to eat more, right? They got too much skin on their bones. They, they need to eat more. Why? Because boys need to grow. But what happens when a boy grows into the stature of a man, yet he fails to grow into the maturity of what men are supposed to be? That's dangerous. That's threatening to the health of a culture and a society. Some of you might be sitting next to, no, I'm joking, maybe. <laughs> the old elbow nudge from the wife, he's talking about you. Um, but we've, we've seen that, right? We've experienced that. Everyone in this room, to some measure, has experienced a boy who grew into the stature of a man, but failed to mature into what God had called men to be. Paul's looking for this holistic reality that our love would both grow into its stature, but also mature. And the agent of those two things is knowledge in all discernment. Why does he want this to happen? Here's the purpose of his prayer. So that you may approve what is excellent. So that you may approve what is excellent. Uh, this language for approving means to affirm or hold fast, right? He, he's saying, I want you to white knuckle something here. As your love grows and matures through knowledge and all discernment, uh, uh, my hope is that the outcome is that you would white knuckle or hold fast that which is excellent. This language for excellent is values that assert a difference. He's talking about the things of God. His will, his law, his truth. Paul is saying your love has to be able to grow and mature through knowledge and discernment so that you can hold fast who God is. That's his goal in this. And so we have to learn about God. We have to grow in our knowledge of who he is. We have to grow in our knowledge of the gospel and what Christ his son has accomplished for us. We have to grow in our knowledge of his, God's person and character. We have to see him fully as he is, a God of both wrath and mercy, a God of justice and kindness, a, 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 a God of vengeance and grace, a, a God who is fully God, and we can't separate him or try to pick him apart or any way. We have to just submit to him as he is because every aspect of his character is essential to his person. He is God. And to grow in our knowledge of him, knowledge that fosters and cultivates discernment is actually going to create in us an ability to love more, that we might hold fast to him. Romans 2, 17 through 20 talks about the same language of approving what is excellent. And here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that it's rooted in an understanding of God's laws, statutes, and commands. Because he's actually writing to Jewish people here in this text. He says these words. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will... 
and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So Paul's helping them understand if, if truly you were full of knowledge and truth so that you were able to approve what is excellent, what he's going to go on to help them understand is that it would point them to Christ, not to works of obedience and self-righteousness, but Christ who is our righteousness. And so the purpose of our agape love to grow and mature is so that we might hold fast to the things of God that create us as a distinct people of his possession. Right, when we become God's people, we become distinct. The, the, the language of this ecclesia, these called out ones, are that we are called out from the world to be a people of God's own possession. And we walk and live counterculturally to the world around us, not separating ourselves from the world, right? And not diving into an infatuation of the world, but being in the world, yet not of it, that we might be light and darkness, salt of the earth. Here we come to the climax of this prayer. And so, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the image of completion. The image of completion looks like this, that you are filled with the fruit of righteousness for the glory of God. When this is all said and done, when we are made like him, we will be filled completely with the fruit of righteousness for the glory of God. And what Christ is calling us to, what the scriptures demand from us, what the Holy Spirit is working in us is to see that fruit of righteousness be cultivated and fostered and mature and develop in us here and now that we might reflect the image of Christ to this world that we live in. What are we getting ready for? We're getting ready for the day of Christ, his return. And this is what the image of completion will look like for us. And so for us, so here's our main idea. My main idea is that we would hold fast to the excellencies of God through a growing and matured love. That we would hold fast to the excellencies of God through a growing and matured love. As we dive in to the scriptures, as we seek to memorize and commit verses of God's word to our heart and to our minds, as, as we seek to be obedient in righteousness, as we have a joy in serving in his kingdom, as we seek to understand the gospel more and more, that what's that going to cause us to do? It's going to cause that love to grow and grow and grow. The more that we seek to understand all that Christ has accomplished for us in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, the smaller we're going to see ourselves, the less self-righteousness, self-centered, and selfish we will become, and the more we'll have that capacity to love in the radical, generous ways that he has shown his love toward us that's going to be able to be expressed on others in this community of people, in the culture that we find ourselves in. That love is going to grow and grow and grow, but the beauty of it all also, is that that love will also mature. It won't be so foolish and so reckless. It'll mature in the way that God has actually called us to love. You see, completion at the day of Jesus' glorious return is for us to be like him, a full reality of the righteousness that he gives to us by grace through faith. 1 John 3, 2 says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This is the thrust of our Christian life, 
We're not just say right? We didn't just raise our hand at some weird Baptist camp you went to and now you're saved forever, right? Or get baptized as an infant and now everything's good. We just have to kind of do whatever we want. We're safe and out of hell. The fullness of this Christian life is that, is that we are saved by grace. We grow by grace. We're matured by grace. That the very image that was marred because of sin's rebellion is restored, renewed, and brought to completion. That we might look like Christ himself. And Paul's revealing a pathway to this image of completion through this prayer. What do we need? We need for our love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. What will that produce? That we would hold fast to the things of God, approve what is excellent. So what might be the outcome? That we would be found pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fullness of the fruit of righteousness. The completed image Paul's praying toward is Christ's finished work in us. The fullness of the work that he began in us by grace. And so our work and the process is to work with God to see our love, that agape love of God, grow and mature in us. And in this, we're going to hold fast to the excellencies of God. But here's the reality. Most of us struggle with this in two different ways. First way, I think that we struggle with this a lot. Many of us abound in love without knowledge or discernment. We abound in love without knowledge or discernment. As I said before, many of us struggle to understand the place knowledge and discernment have in our love for others. Our hearts and our heads are often too disconnected. Maybe, maybe you identify as this person. Like, you just wear your heart on your sleeve. You love everyone, right? You're the first person to quote, uh, misquote the scriptures that we shouldn't judge other people. Uh, I love you. You're wrong. Uh, but anyway, right? We're super inclusive. We just love everyone. We, we want to make sure that everyone feels welcome and a part of what we're doing, right? And in some ways, we really wear our hearts so disconnected from our head. And some of this looks like, really, it's what is unmatured love? Well, it's foolish love. And I'm going to bet that many of you have found yourself getting hurt over and over and over and over again because of the reckless nature or the foolish nature of your love that it's not grown by or accompanied by for maturing knowledge and all discernment. How many of you have been in a relationship that was young, foolish love, right? Everybody told you, don't date that person. You're, you're married to him now. That's cool. My wife is. <laughs> My wife is married to the dude who everybody told her not to get involved with. God is I'm, this isn't the norm. This is the not norm. I don't know what that means. If you're sitting next to a dude, people told you not to date, you probably shouldn't date him. Uh, but we, we've all experienced that. Everybody had this knowledge and discernment. And probably many of you even got your heart broke over that reality because you rushed into this foolish love. What was that love absent of? It was absent of knowledge and discernment. And so a lot of times when we engage with culture and we engage with the world around us, we run headfirst in this deep affection and love that we have for others. But it's often very foolish because we lack discernment. Because knowledge is the very thing that fosters discernment for us. We need a love that is matured in truth. Because yes, God calls us to love all people, but God gives us very distinct ways in which that love should look. He gives us very distinct ways of how that love should be first and foremost to this family of believers, the covenant people of God, that it is by our love for y'all that those around us will understand that we truly are Christ's disciples. That's red letter word. Y'all can't throw that away, right? It's the way that we love one another first. We sacrifice for one another first, that we see each other's needs meet first, that the world around us will actually peer in through a window and be jealous as they gaze upon the very affection that we love one another with. Not the way that we love them 
or welcome them or treat them. I'm not saying that it's absent of those things, but we misunderstand the way that God calls us to love and apply that love. And if we had more knowledge and ability to discern, we might love more correctly the way God has called us to. But some of us, we don't run around with foolish love, right? Some of us, we abound in knowledge and discernment without love. We're jerks, like me. We're knowledge without love. You're the, you're the dude. You, no one has to tell you, don't judge. You've, you, you, you've, you, you know how to exegete that passage. You know properly how that's applied. And you're the one always judging in the first place. You're correcting the person that says, don't judge. And you're like, well, actually, um, and you're just full of knowledge. And what's knowledge without love? It's pride. And you got big old heads and tiny little hearts, like me. I'm super slow to love people. I'm super slow to trust people. I'm super slow to, 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 to find value in relationships with other people. But I'm quick to judge. And here's what I think what happened. I think a lot of us probably lived lives where if we were going to make it, we were going to have to make it by our own strength, striving, and effort. And when we look at other people, we fail to have any actual empathy or compassion because here's our typical response. Well, if they just did the right things, they'd get themselves out of that mess. And what are we believing for ourselves? We're believing for ourselves that we actually got to these places by our own works and strivings? Have we so quickly forgotten the reality of grace and God's sovereignty that every footstep is ordered before the foundations of the earth of which we should walk in the pathways of righteousness because Christ is Lord, not Justin is Lord? We operate and live in a gospel of works and we forsake and dismiss a gospel of grace that you are only one of God's children because of his agape, intentional, steadfast, Love of his own free will to be placed upon you. You didn't do anything right to earn his love and affection for you. We lack empathy. We take a posture that if, hey, if they just did what we did, if they just worked hard, if they just pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, if they just, whatever, they'd be out of this mess. Like I said, we're all head and little heart. We need truth that is saturated in love. You see, at the end of the day, we aren't called to love foolishly. But we're also not called to be filled with cold knowledge. We're called to love that is rooted in the radical love and glorious knowledge of the gospel. Because we have experienced God's love through radical grace and we love others through that same grace that we have received but our hope village people is that what they call y'all here <laughs> if they don't they should start am i right i thought of that one this morning while i was drinking my coffee usually when i preload text uh jokes they don't work but anyway uh that one did cool um our hope isn't how good we love other people our hope isn't like how theologically robust we are in our thinking. Our hope is not in any of our strivings and efforts and scraping and clawing through this life. Our hope is this. Jesus completes the good work he started. That's our hope. Jesus completes the good work he started. If you've been a receiver of grace, as Paul was, you should also be fully persuaded of this outcome, that Christ will finish everything he started in your life. That's good news. It's not, it's not rooted in performance, but it's in his love for us. And so we can rest there's a reality where, think about this, Paul, or whoever, whoever wrote Hebrews, I don't know, he talked about Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. 
When we are saved by grace through faith, what happens to us? We are exalted to what? Be seated with him. Think about the power of that for a second. Think about the confidence that is being exhibited through the powerful, resurrecting truth of the gospel. That when we are saved, we are exalted and we are seated with him now. And we're in this tension of the already not yet, right? We're in this tension of longing for things to be that are not yet happening and realized within our lives, but we have a confidence beyond what we see. Faith is not what we see. If we want our faith to grow, if we want our love for others and one another to grow, then we have to get into the truths of the scripture because every truth, every word uttered out of the mouth of God is yes and amen. If one word of his that he ever uttered comes back void, if it comes back a lie, God is no longer God. He banked every promise, every word on his name alone because he searched heaven and earth for a name that was greater than his and he could find none and so what did he say on my very name on the name of Yahweh will I bank every single word that comes out of my mouth it will come to pass we should have confidence church we should be filled with joy we should search the scriptures to understand him more deeply and more clearly that what we might hold fast to him that we might have confidence as we walk through this life that every promise he's ever made to us and proven to be true in Christ Jesus is ours to lay claim of. I hope for us that our Christmas Advent season would be one of complete and full joy. I pray that our love would abound and it would grow and mature through knowledge and discernment because we believe as we sang in that first song this morning, we believe these things to be true. And that should fill us with all hope and joy and peace. So my prayer for you is this, that our love would grow and mature with knowledge and discernment. My prayer is that we would stop seeing these two things in these broken silos. Love is over here and then knowledge and discernment's over here. We'd actually see the way they beautifully inter, they're interdependent upon one another. And some of us who love recklessly and foolishly, we just sing Corey Asbury all the time. Um, we, we, um, we, we allow that love to actually grow bigger and mature more rightly, that we actually love one another and the lost the way that the Bible calls us to love them, to speak the truth to them, to share the gospel with them, right? I pray that I love would grow and mature of this. As some of you with cold knowledge, right? You just wanna quote old dead dudes that you've never really read all of their work. You just have these little tidbits of things that you use in slam arguments. Uh, I pray that you get a heart. <laughs> That's my prayer for myself. Lord, give me a heart. It's like um, that you would grow. Look, any theology that doesn't foster doxology is broken. If our knowledge and understanding of God, our studying of him doesn't create in us intimate, joy-filled, ecstatic worship for who he is, we don't know how to study theology well. We should be the biggest worshipers of God. If you're a Calvinist in this room, right, or Reformed, I don't know what you guys are, but you should love God more. Why does it look like you don't? Why does your life look so sad sometimes? Why is that not fostering deep and intimate, heart-burning love for God and for others? That's theology, right? Because all of theology leads us to these two simple truths, right? That we would love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourself. All of theology, you see how that points us to that end? And so we need to grow, church. Our love needs to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for the agape love that you placed upon us before time began. Before there was morning and evening, before there was the separation of water and land, there was your love intentionally and purposely set on us. And nothing was going to stop that. That we might experience and know our highest good. To be reconciled to you by the atoning sacrificial work of your son. I pray that our love would grow and mature. That we might be found pure and blameless on the day when you glorious return for us, your church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. We're gonna uh, shepherd you guys through a time of coming and receiving communion. Um, Every week here at the Village Church, uh, you all partake of communion with your covenant members. You come forward and receive the bread that's on the plate, which represents Christ's body broken for you. And you drink of the cup that represents his blood that was poured out for you and the promises of his new covenant. If you're a Christian visiting with us this morning, meaning you're not a covenant member of the village, but you have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sin and you are walking in step with the truth of the gospel, then we want to joyfully invite you to come forward and feast on Christ's finished work this morning. If you're with us and you would say, I don't know that I really am a Christian, I think that I have more questions than answers, I think I am still wrestling with what the Bible says Jesus has done for me, then we want to shepherd you lovingly in a different direction this morning. Your next step is not to come forward and take of this sacred and holy meal. The Bible actually says that those who do that eat and drink condemnation on themselves. First Corinthians chapter 11 tells us this. And we love you. We don't want that for you. This is, this is love filled with knowledge and discernment to help you. This isn't us judging you. This is us asking you to make a judgment upon yourself. If you would like to talk with someone about what it means to follow Christ and to live for him and to trust him for the forgiveness of your sins, we have a prayer team over at the right side of the gathering space here. They would love to talk with you, answer questions for you, pray with you, or maybe just get your number so they can grab coffee with you sometime later this week to talk more and more about the truth of what Christ has done in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. But at this time, we're going to come forward as the band leads us to respond by savoring the finished work of Christ as a body of believers. Amen? Amen. You guys can come forward as you feel led.